This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm Megan O'Rourke, a culture critic for Slate. And joining me today are um, regular book club presence, Troy Patterson, Slate's wonderful TV critic. Welcome, Troy. Hello. Hello. And we have a special guest star, Emily Bazelon, a Slate editor and contributor. And we're really excited to have her here with us today. Hi, Emily. Hello. And what we are talking about is the 50th anniversary edition of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. And we'll be getting into Emily's legal expertise in our discussion of this amazing book about, among other things, a trial and democracy and American law. So, Well, before we get to American law, we'll do American commerce, and I'll read the ad. Fabulous. Good. We today are brought to you by Audible.com, which offers you more than 50,000 downloadable audiobooks. And if you sign up for a one-book-a-month subscription to Audible through our URL, you'll get a credit good for one free book. Perhaps you'll want to get To Kill a Mockingbird, presuming they have it. If not, kids, then there are other books that'll get you through your uh, books available there that'll help you coast your way through your summer reading assignments. And so anyway, Mockingbird or something else will be yours to keep, even if you cancel your subscription within the 14-day trial period. That address is www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate. I actually would love to listen to this book. I think it would be a great mm-hmm. fun for listening. Mm-hmm. Who do you think a good reader would be? You want somebody with a nice, sultry Alabama accent? Uh, yeah, a hint of it. Not over the top, though, don't you think? Yeah. Not too much. But, you know, like, Meryl Streep could do a really good job, I guess. Mm. Someone younger, maybe, right? You want, yeah, like, a young, yeah. Young, like, and a, not famous. I think someone not famous. Are, mm. Yeah. Okay, well, so plunging back into our our book at hand, which I'm really excited to talk about, To Kill a Mockingbird, iconic American beloved novel, also the only novel that Harper Lee ever wrote, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit. And for me, the book is extremely, is sort of in 
deeply connected to reading it in school. I remember reading it when we were in sixth or seventh grade, and we read it in a segment that we all, we also did Animal Farm, and it was a whole segment about kind of individual and society and and groupthink and moral responsibility. But one of the things that strikes me about this book, and one of the things I best remember about it, is just the incredibly evocative details about what it's like to live in a southern town as a child at this time. And that was immediately present as soon as you, that opening paragraph about Jem breaking his arm and what it felt like to read it is kind of amazing. What um, what was it like for you, Troy and Emily, to read this book again, presuming you read it before? I, I read it before. That. I yes. think it was my summer reading before going into eighth grade or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a good book. I think it's 30 pages too long. I was especially struck by the sense of place. What, what uh, I don't know, I'm looking back here through my sort of marginalia and on the third page there's this talk about um, you know Boo Radley living in his uh, spooky house or at least a house that spooks out the kids and Boo's forebearers from the day Mr. Radley took Arthur home people said the house died Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that goes towards the way that um, uh, Harper Lee makes this town pulse and sort of gives it a heartbeat that sort of the house died and the sort of places have lives of their own. Yeah, that's a great image of the pulsing, because I think that is, there's so much of that sense of, the book feels to me like it takes place in summer, even though it doesn't, that there's so much of that, like, the sound of kind of crickets and animals pulsing in the heat. Emily, what about you? What was it like to reread this? You know, I was struck reading it as a parent by the Boo Radley story in a different way than I'd read it as a child. There's there's this incredible sense of nostalgia for uh, much of this town. A lot of the characters, Miss Maudie, who's one of her neighbors, and other neighbors are rendered with a great deal of affection, even though Harper Lee is also exposing the racism of the town. But there's really no judgment of the idea that the whole town has let this child, Boo Radley, be raised by these parents who never let him out of the house. And essentially, it seems like sort of tortured him after his teenage years. That whole setup for Boo and why he is um, a recluse was different than I thought, and I found it really disturbing, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and it changed the whole sort of prism through which I saw the book. Mm-hmm. Right. It makes you, for, uh, One of the things I realized is there are really two tragedies, two kind of shadow figures in the book, and one is Boo, and the other is Tom Robinson, who we don't, who is the the black man accused of raping Mayella. How would we say her name? Mayella, Mayella Ewell, mm-hmm. um, who is. Um, Portrayed as kind of you know poor white trash, uneducated, uh, to some degree unsympathetic. Although she's the only character in the book who almost comes across as unsympathetic. Though there's a there's a great speech by Atticus, his summation in the trial, where he kind of rescues that a little bit. And like you, Emily, one of the things I was really struck by was parenting in this book. I was thinking about it more the figure of Atticus as parent which you know you read the book and you just he's this you know he's kind of held up in this like golden light of of rectitude and perfection that somehow succeeds I think um doesn't seem sentimental I wonder what did you find I think it doesn't seem sentimental partly because there's uh, a detachment there he's not mm-hmm. a sort of cozy cuddly sort of single father he's mm-hmm. You know, he comes home, he reads his newspaper, and when it's time to sort of impart a lesson, he sort of steps forward. Um, you know, later in the book, he maybe dispenses a few hugs, uh, um, <laughs> cracks and, a smile and, and warms now up a bit. and then. Right. But but his his uh, 
coolness seems both kind of appropriate to the way that a man in late middle age, a father in late middle age, would have conducted himself at the time, and also to his, what should we call it? Uh, Not exactly all business, but his interest in sort of honor and rectitude. uh, It's a good word that you chose, uh, Mm -hmm. above all else. Is there any need, do we have any need to offer a a further plot summary than we already have, given uh, that every adolescent in America has... I, th- I think maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the themes, for example, these themes of democracy and we, we could talk we could do plot summary of, by way of thematic summary. <laughs> It'll um, be sprinkled in wanna... as we go. I wanted to add <laughs> know, one more yeah, thing about um about the the relationship between Atticus and his two kids, Jem and Scout. Scout, obviously, is the narrator. Harper Lee talked about this book as being a love story, pure and simple. And and obviously, it's about her love for this father figure. I mean, Atticus really is presented in almost... There are ways... He's sort of saintly. I mean, mm-hmm. and his Christianity, I think, is quite pronounced in that way, too. And, uh, you know, it... It is quite a feat to pull off that kind of adulation in a way that isn't sentimentalized, and I think your explanation for it, Troy, is really good. Um, I also think there is something about just the setting that Atticus is in of having to contend with these other forces that helps the book kind of pass that potential barrier. Definitely, I, the, you said exactly what I was thinking, Emily. Which is that it is it's just it's it's it is very hard to pull this off, and for me, it did feel pulled off. I want to ask you about these through that lens or through any lens in the book this book is a book that's very preoccupied with certain ideas about kind of ethical living and moral moral and ethical living in a community it's really a book about community as as we were saying and, and a lot of the pleasures of the writing have to do with that but it's also a book with a series of points to make and it seems to me it succeeds in making them without feeling didactic but I wonder if you might talk about what those points were for you and whether it how the book succeed, did the book succeed in that way? Rereading it now. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, I I'm a lawyer, not the kind that anyone would ever want to hire. But I did go to law school, and so I was very struck by the idea, the ideal of the defense lawyer that's put mm-hmm. forward in this book. Scout actually explicitly talks about it, um, and there's one passage that I'll find in a second that's relevant to that. But you know, there's this. Um, this way in which Atticus is being asked to kind of take on this task in the town no one else wants to do, and yet there are enough white people in the town who have some sense of justice that they don't want to simply either lynch Tom Robinson, who's been accused of raping male Yule, or have what's called a judicial lynching, where essentially there's like a kangaroo court. And so he is chosen to represent Tom Robinson, and essentially one of the points I think Lee is making is about working for justice in a situation where, you know, you have to kind of go it alone and people there's implicit approval of what you're doing from some people but a lot of explicit disapproval and you have to go to actually quite great lengths now you know whether that heroic story about Atticus really kind of plays it definitely works within the context of the book I think we can ask questions about whether it Mm -hmm. moves beyond that Um, Mm -hmm. but let's see I'm looking for this passage Oh, here we go. Okay. This is a passage on page 187 in which Scout is having to confront the criticism of Atticus in the town for having really 
for really planning to give Tom Robinson a real defense. And she says, um, the court appointed Atticus to defend him. Atticus aimed to defend him. That's what they didn't like about it. It was confusing. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly the dilemma still of a lot of defense lawyers. Um, Any unpopular cause where lawyers get involved, very concisely put. Mm -hmm. Troy. I'm going to hop back just very slightly to a point that you made. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that the book is a bit didactic Mm -hmm. and sort of right at the edge of polemical. That's the way I feel. You know, you spend time in a college English department and you get sort of trained to believe that literature should not be working too hard to make points. This is why, you know, Steinbeck gets no respect in the academy. And so I wonder if uh, there are moments where the book gets a bit horsey doing that, sort of near the end when uh, sort of Scout's teacher is um, sort of, you know, uh, talking about Hitler. Uh, You know, this book is, at at that point in the book, it's 1935. And so there's this connection that Scout makes implicitly between sort of uh, Hitler's rounding up of the Jews and the sort of discrimination against blacks in the American South, which I, um, I mean... Sure, yeah, but uh, it feels a little forced to you. Like, why I feel, are we I felt having mildly this analogy? Bludgeoned. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair. Slight concussion. Well, and also Atticus's <laughs> response to that moment is to tell Scout that it's not okay to hate Hitler, which is really a saintly pose. Oh yeah, that's the one moment in the book that I always can't quite get my mind around. Can I? I want to try to answer. Th- jump onto what you're saying, Troy, if you're if you're done with that. Can I? Bring it. Yeah. Well, you know, I was thinking about this, right? And I was thinking particularly about that moment. And it's right around there. I, I, first of all, I should preface this by saying, I agree with you. The book is does feel about 20 pages, 20 to 30 pages too long. And But one thing I realized, or one thing I started to think reading it again this time, was that there's a moment right after... Um, after Tom is convicted, he comes back with a guilt. They come back with a guilty conviction, which there's some suspense about. We're led to almost believe that that might not happen, right? Because if you can imagine reading, eyes, because from the children's yes. eyes, right? They're like, of course, this has to be right. It's actually a really good use of children, right? To it's have this very, sense of justice and naivete yeah. that allows for this illusion. Yeah, and one of the things that happens afterward is Atticus comes home and he's slump-shouldered and defeated, and he says, and and Jem says to him, "How could they do it?" And Atticus responds, and this is on page two forty-four. I don't know, but they did it. They've done it before, and they did it tonight, and they'll do it again. And when they do it, it seems that only children weep. Good night. And a couple pages earlier, there's this moment during the trial when Dill, who's who's a kind of cynical, boastful character, chi- you know, child, who, of course, is actually quite sensitive on the inside. The, the, we, the way we realize this is that he starts crying in court when they're cross-examining Tom Robinson because it's just the guy's being so condescending and horrible and patronizing and he leaves they come out he and scout leave the courtroom and this other figure in the town who seems to be kind of a drunk ne'er-do-well says something about the same thing about children weeping and soon they're going to toughen up and stop weeping and this is all by way of saying that i realize this is really a book for children i think teenage not children but let's say not for adults like adults can read it but it's really it is proselytizing in a certain way it's trying to i think get under your skin so much of what the writing is about is about what it feels like to be a child to be to be misunderstood as a child mm-hmm. and kind of you know and it is about i think getting under kids skin and kind of getting to that vulnerable tender place where they still weep before they grow out of it right. you know uh, and that's really well put i think there's no doubt that if this book came out 
today it would be marketed as a young adult novel. Yeah, interesting. Although it also has these quite adult themes. I mean, right. I'm actually interested, Megan, that you read it in sixth or seventh grade for school. Yeah. I was try- I have a son who's a fourth grader, and I'm I was thinking of reading it out loud with him. And then I started, and I decided not to. That yeah. it was just that he's not. I don't need to read a book where the central drama is about rape. With yeah, him right now. You know, we read it, and I, and I have to say, like, I loved it at that age, and it was so. It, I, I so identified with Scout and her her weird mixture of total innocence and confusion, and kind of. Um, prickliness about that and also her her curiosity and her sense of coming you know it was an amazing I think it is it really works reading it at that at and that she's age. an amazing portrayal of a second child also and yeah. Jem is such a classic first child I mean they're yeah. like Ramona and Beatrice yeah. in the Ramona yeah. books but and that you know again as a parent if that resonates for you it's very yeah. evocative yeah no I mean I think that that's she's she one of the things Harper Lee is really good at and one of the things I actually found a little irritating as an adult reading it are these kind of child moments that feel a little bit um, kind of staged one way or the other where she'll like she'll kind of have to say like I saw Atticus's mouth start to curl but she can't say too much about it because she can't be too knowing of a narrator and actually that's a maybe a question we could talk about is what what's the vantage point of this narration I mean it is from a child's point of view how did you how did you experience that Troy this is an intriguing puzzle for me is so the question of at what distance is this retrospection happening? Making the way, making your way through the book, you encounter a lot of SAT words, mm-hmm. sort of all the more pungent for being balanced against this, uh, this sort of homey localisms. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's it's tough. If we're to accept that the book is, if not autobiographical, at least. Uh, strongly grounded in Miss Harper's own youth, then let's see. She publishes the book in 1960. It's set in the early 30s. So, and Scout's in third grade when the book ends. So, is this. This uh, is her. She was born in 1926. So, yes, it tracks her life very closely. Okay. So, is this a woman in her mid 30s looking back at her youth? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I say that, and then I wonder if it matters. Sort of what... Like what the frame... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess... So we're we're trying to read... This is a question about what degree of sophistication and wisdom mm-hmm. sort of the Scout the narrator brings to the exploits of Scout the character... I think she tries to do it from a very immersed point of view. Yes. With some... But there are these moments that beg this question because they seem to pull back a little bit from that immersion. But usually we are immersed, right? I mean, yeah. one scene that comes to mind is when Atticus is outside of the jail where Tom Robinson is being held. And he is sitting there reading under a light because he's afraid there's going to be a lynching posse. And indeed, a whole bunch of um more country men show up, and that is their plan. And Jem and Scout are there kind of, I mean, they really shouldn't be, but they kind of went to see what was happening with their father, and Scout um, 
you know, very deftly but completely unconsciously breaks the tension by trying to talk to Mr. Cunningham, who is the father of one of her classmates. And that is a moment in which we're totally immersed because she is just looking for a friendly face. That's the um, phrase, I think, that mm-hmm. Lee uses and is not trying to deflect the tension, mm-hmm. doesn't realize that, you know, a killing is about to take place. Right. Sees that there are some adults upset, but that's all she's really responding to. And it's only because she's completely immersed in that moment right. that she can do what she does. And I think for a reader, too, if you were reading that with any kind of adult narrator voice, it would be a totally different scene and much less effective. Check. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, here's one of the things that interests me, and I don't know how directly it answers the question I just posed, but let me read this passage on 196, page 196, which is one of the rare moments in which uh, sort of the scout narrating sort of steps forward and sort of, you might call it analogous to like breaking the fourth wall, right? Hmm. And so this is happening in the middle of this trial. Uh, Bob Ewell, the father of the alleged victim is about to take the stand and um, this person Mr. Gilmer is the prosecutor Mr. Gilmer's back stiffened a little and I felt sorry for him perhaps I'd better explain something now I've heard that lawyers' children on seeing their parents in court in the heat of argument get the wrong idea they think opposing counsel to be the personal enemies of their parents they suffer agonies and are surprised to see them often go out arm in arm with their tormentors during the first recess this was not true of Jem and me. We acquired no traumas from watching our father win or lose. I'm sorry that I can't provide any drama in this respect. If I did, it would not be true. We could tell, however, when debate became more acrimonious than professional, but this was from watching lawyers other than our father. I never heard Atticus raise his voice in my life except to a deaf witness. Mr. Gilmer was doing his job, and Atticus was doing his. Besides, Mr. Yule was Mr. Gilmer's witness, and he had no business being rude to him of all people. Hmm. So you've been asking all the questions, Megan. Yes. uh, So I'll I'll turn the tables and ask you what you make of that. It was definitely a passage that leapt out when I read it because in it, she steps so far back to um, to kind of expose what she's thinking overall. And, um, you know, I had kind of an editor's response. I thought, that passage just shouldn't be there. You know, it, it doesn't really, she doesn't really need to tell us any of this. And it does feel like the intrusion of another kind of narrative voice that, mm-hmm. that for me isn't present in the book. And, and as Emily was saying before, is for me part of the success of the book um, is, again, that, that immersion in a child struggling to figure out the world with the right you know this book would would not work if there were too many moments like this mm-hmm. i think because it would feel very labored right this like quality of kind of uh, overdetermined nudging the reader to think a certain way that you were talking about troy would just become very present. Right. You know, know, there's a much more, I think, skillful moment that has just a little bit of that where Mayella takes the stand and Scout has this question. She's talking about um, how Atticus is calling Mayella Miss Mayella and calling her ma'am. And she says, um, and Mayella has been upset about that. 
Um, and Scout says, what on earth was her life like? And it, that seemed like mm. a question. It has a little mm-hmm. bit of distance. I don't know if seven-year-olds really go around mm-hmm. using phrases like that, mm-hmm. but you could imagine her wondering, and that goes with this very prominent and slightly didactic theme in the book about stepping into someone else's skin, yeah. which is a, f- a phrase that's repeated that Atticus talks about, this whole idea of shifting vantage points so that you can have this sort of very um, deep sense of empathy. And a sense of what it means to live in a community, definitely. And, and he uses that phrase first when they're kind of um, playing, a, the kids are playing a game about of, of being Boo Radley. And of course, we haven't talked much about Boo Radley, but the Boo Radley story is a big, big part of this book. It's really the whole first hundred pages almost are preoccupied, not with Tom Robinson or this trial, but with this, the specter of Boo. And, and Boo, it seems to me that one of the reasons this book works, if there were if the Boo Radley plot were not there, I don't think this book would have half the power it has. I think it would seem much, much more didactic. But instead, we have this kind of Shakespearean double plot of Boo Radley, and, who seems like it'll be the major plot, and then that gets inverted when Tom Robinson enters. And that's, and yet they're sort of similar figures because they're both figures who, as you were saying, Emily, kind of are are being not seen in some sense by the community, right? And and what Scout is doing and what's happening in the book is she's learning to see them and learning to step into their skin. Right, and, and it gives the book a sense that it is open to and understands different kinds of suffering, which yeah. I think is really helpful in the story. I think you're absolutely right yeah. about the power of right. and where it comes from. But there's that, and I also think in as much as this is a coming-of-age story, the early focus on Boo allows the book to show this movement from the child's world of fantasy and imagination to the beginning of a kind of sympathetic imagination Mm. um, involved with justice and principle. Yeah, I mean, totally. And I was to go back to your question, which I never really really answered, Troy, is that I think one of the reasons these moments kind of accrue toward the end of the book is it is a it is dramatizing Scout's coming of age. I mean, it's an early coming of age, but it is dramatizing what it is to move from a child's mind to sort of the inklings of an adult of an adult world. Right. Um, and there's a way that I think that the book's sort of coming-of-age theme gets sort of displaced or perhaps projected onto Jem, who mm-hmm. near the end is sort of beginning to develop hair in his armpits and such. <laughs> Once be called, play football. Right, yeah. Called <laughs> Mr. Jem. One thing I just want to do is I, I want to just read a passage that will give a sense of, of Lee's writing um, because I think that... I had recently reread um, Anne of Green Gables, and I was struck in that book. And Emily's nodding. I know the you must love that, that book. book is amazing. Yeah, though. but what Why is so? Why did you reread Anne of Green oh, Gables? Oh, just for comfort. For I don't know. For kicks. I totally understand. <laughs> I read that whole book out loud to my boys, so who good. are like, they listened. It's a long book to read out loud. Let but me you tell know, you. there is so much overwriting. But the reason I bring it up is that book. One of the things you realize is that L. M. Montgomery is so good at writing about small towns mm-hmm. and communities, and that's, that's one really of the things true. that. Harper Lee is so good at is that she's not just kind of polemically writing about community life. She really cares about community life in some way and about town life and about what and that makes the the kind of dilemma at the heart of the book an actual dilemma, which is how to be maybe a slightly idiosyncratic individual within a conventional town when you still care about the town in some way and the other the other people in I just want to read a passage on page five, which I think is some of her really, really good writing. And it also goes back to this question of narration. I think in the book we start almost from a slightly aerial point of view and then descend down into into Scout's character. So 
page five in this edition. She writes, Maycomb was an old town, but it was a tired old town when I first knew it. In rainy weather, the streets turned to red slop. Grass grew on the sidewalks. The courthouse sagged in the square. Somehow, it was hotter then. A black dog suffered on a summer's day. Bony mules hitched to hoover carts flicked flies in the sweltering shade of the live oaks on the square. Men's stiff collars wilted by nine in the morning. Ladies bathed before noon and after their three o'clock naps, and by nightfall were like soft tea cakes with frostings of sweat and sweet talcum. Uh, and she goes on to describe more. I mean, that's just, you know, it's just great descriptive I, um, I writing. I watched the movie of this book uh, last night because I just thought it would be fun to watch it. And there are a few passages that are read out loud, and that is one of them. Oh, really? And it sets up, it's it's just beautiful. I mean, that yeah. tea cake image is so lovely, and yeah. you see these people walking on these hot, dusty streets. Yeah. It works brilliantly. Yeah. Emily, I wanted to ask you a question as in your, in your lawyer role as well as your critic and reader role, which is um, recently Malcolm Gladwell in a New York piece raised questions about whether Atticus Finch is really kind of a model defense lawyer or whether he's more of an accommodationist. And I wonder if you would just talk a little bit about that. Well, Gladwell's critique is, it's sort of about, somewhat about time and place. And he talks Mm -hmm. about other um, white Southerners at the time who were trying to be somewhat critical of segregation and of racism without really taking it on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Gladwell's point is that we have... Atticus has come down to us as this kind of ideal defense lawyer, I think in large part because Gregory Peck is so compelling as the Atticus of the film version. And we have this notion that he stands for justice because, as we were saying before, he puts on this full defense for Tom Robinson. But as Gladwell emphasizes, and here he's picking up on uh, a bunch of law professors, particularly Steve Lubat, who wrote about this about 10 years ago, the way that Atticus tries to save Tom Robinson is by going after Mayel Ewing on the stand and basically... um, putting on a she-wanted defense at a rape trial, which, as feminists, we've come to really abhor that notion that what you do with female witnesses in a rape trial is you try and smear them. Um, Atticus doesn't succeed in that Robinson is still convicted, but he does definitely succeed in humiliating Mayella. And so the question that Steve Lubat, the law professor who kind of launched this discussion, asked is, what if we imagine that Tom Robinson is guilty in this book, or that at least hmm. his innocence is not clear? This is not a reading of the book that I think is in line hmm. at all with hmm. how we normally read it. But if you turn the tables in your mind for a moment, then what do you think about Atticus's lawyering tactics? Hmm. It's so impossible because everything in the book sets us up to believe yes. that Atticus is... You know, it's hard for me to answer that question because Atticus would have to be a different character to... Right. So then what Lubet does is try and use this to talk about how, what do you do if you're a defense lawyer where it's not clear that, hmm. you know, the, 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 the justice and injustice is not as clear, and yet your you're zealous advocacy, you're supposed to be putting on a full defense, sort of where are the lines? And he says, you know, look, most defense lawyers today would draw the line way before Atticus did in a trial mm-hmm. unless they were really, you know, had this kind of very black and white mm-hmm. guilt and innocence picture. We just we just disapprove of this kind mm-hmm. of um, hectoring of a witness, and yet in this book it seems like heroism. Hmm. Right. I don't know. I I'm willing to go so far as to say that Atticus is hectoring the witness. I don't think he's smearing her. Well, 
Okay. Well, except that in eliciting testimony from Robinson, from Tom Robinson, he gets Tom to say that Mayella said at that moment before the race. So the idea is that Mayella basically lured Tom in and then physically started hugging and kissing him. And Robinson's account of what happened is that she saved money to send the kids away. She said, I might as well kiss a black man. What my father did with me doesn't count. That line is actually cut from the film, just Mm. that last line. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty brutal line to have out there. There, um, you know the idea that, and there are which many line the, that her fa- the father line? yeah that she's also a victim of incest, um, but that made it, her seem more sympathetic to me, right? Sort of, but when you think about having that elicited in a public courtroom as part of your that's now how people think of you. That's pretty upsetting. Hmm. That's interesting. And the mm-hmm. town is not... I mean, she, in some ways, is the third tragic figure in the book, right? Totally. Like, she seems to be this... Her, it seems like her father is beating on her and no one's doing anything about it. And that's part of the sickness that has led to this trial and this terrible result of an innocent man convicted. No, you know, it's that's a really interesting part of the book. And to me, that was definitely the most troubling part of the book. I mean, I, I did not think that she is humiliated. I didn't actually feel that reading it. I felt there was a moment where I started to think, wow, she's kind of, you know, Harper Lee is treating everyone somewhat fairly and from some somewhat of a rounded perspective, you know, even the kind of mean old lady who is disparaging about Atticus on the, you know... The one with the Confederate gun. The one with the gun under the Right. You know, turns out to be a morphine addict, and, you know, Atticus says, oh, she's the bravest person. Whereas Atticus really doesn't have anything nice to say about the Yules, and neither does Scout or any... You know, the Yules are just, like, the black sheep of the town. And as white trash. Over and over again, they're described So there's this moment in that all where I was like, oh, she is being kind of humiliated. But then I did think Atticus's speech where he says she did something we all do, where she's embarrassed by having crossed the line of what society considers acceptable and she wanted to blame someone else and that's not a horrible thing to do it's it's something we all do i thought that was that was where lee saved it for me and where mm-hmm. it gets humanized because that's part of the book's point right is that we're all caught up in this machinery of convention and figuring out our own way and we all we all become engaged in some kind of falseness so the, it's an interesting But I think that from Mayella's point of view, I mean, she runs out of the courtroom. They are absolutely, you know, horrified. The Yules, I think, from their point of view, they're not redeemed. I mean, I, I, I think you're right. No, she's not redeemed, definitely. But, but that, but from the broader vantage of the book, that Mm -hmm. moment, that scene gets redeemed Mm -hmm. for me a little Mm -hmm. bit by that. But it is really, that was definitely the part that made me the most uncomfortable with the books vantage point or with the authors right I mean the other side of this is if we think that Tom Robinson is innocent which I certainly do reading this book I mean he has you know she's been beaten from by someone who led with his right hand he has a or whatever yeah left hand his left hand barely works like you're set up quite in a quite over determined way to believe in this man's innocence well this was the only way to try and tell the story of what had happened and to try and get this man off. Um, so, you know, I think it, you can justify it in those terms. But it's pretty brutal. It is. And I definitely agree with you that she's the third tragic figure in, in the sense of being kind of abandoned by the community. And it goes does go back to what Atticus says early on when he's trying to talk about compromises that you make in society because he's not, he's not an absolutist, right? Even though he has a lot of very clear moral values, he was talking about telling, explaining to Scout why it's okay that the Yules don't come to school for more than one day a year. And he's like, right, well, right. there are just some families that just kind of live off the rest of the town and that's what you do and you sort of leave them alone right you know and I, well for one thing that 
does kind of go toward the accommodationist point. Yeah. I, I think that there's yeah. a way in which sort of Atticus just uh, generally accepts the caste system of the yes. town. And I don't know. And he that's... wouldn't be able to live in that town at that moment if he hadn't, I suppose. But it's unsavory when you really start yeah. plumbing the depths of it. Because right. he does it. He doesn't. He doesn't kind of reinstantiate it. What's a better word for that? That's not so academic. But you know, he, he there's a very funny scene where it becomes apparent that Aunt Alexandra, his much more conventional sister, has like wanted him to tell the kids what who the Finches really are, and he tries to do it, and they're he like, ah, "This is so weird." And the kids start to freak out because they're like, "You're not our dad anymore," and he can't do it. And so he's not kind of reestablishing it, but he is definitely accepting it. You're right, Troy. Yeah. Yeah. So that was one point yeah. that uh, the discussion led me to. The other is this talk about Mayella makes me realize the degree to which this is a book about uh, sex and gender. You know, we tend to read it and are conditioned to read it as a book that's sort of first about race. But there is a great deal of concern with sort of a woman's place in Southern society um, and there's some throwaway lines, even like how oh we can't have women on juries because they just yep. talk too much. Right, yeah. right, and <laughs> and it is it's not incidental that um, that Scout is a tomboy. And so, what are our thoughts? Well, I, I want to definitely. I mean, that was I totally agree. That was something that struck me deeply rereading the book, which I had never thought about before. And part of it is in Scout's extreme interest in some of the older female characters, especially Miss Maudie, is her name? Miss, mm-hmm. Miss Ma- to your point, Troy, that it is also, in a slightly more subterranean way, a book about sex and gender. There's an extraordinary passage where Jem and Scout go with Calpurnia, their, their kind of housekeeper and nanny who's black, to her church. And Scout is really observing and struck by all the differences and a little bit unsettled by, you know, they don't have hymn books. They, they you know, recite the line and then repeat it because people can't read. But she says this funny thing, and I'll try to find the passage where she's like, then Reverend Sykes starts to give a sermon. She's like, and it was just like, pretty much just like our sermons, especially in the part about how women are the great horror and temptation of, of life. You know, it's just one of those little lines where you realize, right, this is about, you know, there's an extremely... Uh, right, but I think also Harper Lee is only semi-fighting this off, right? Yeah. I mean, she's not fully evolved as a feminist in the same way that Atticus isn't fully devolved as, like, a civil rights preacher or teacher figure, right? I mean, there's this line toward the end of the book on 268 where she says, Ladies seem to live in faint horror of men, seemed unwilling to approve wholeheartedly of them, but I liked them. There was something about them, no matter how much they cussed and drank and gambled and chewed, no matter how undelectable they were, there was something about them that I instantly liked. They weren't hypocrites. And hypocrites isn't actually from her own mind. It's just the next line in the dialogue of these ladies who are chattering over their TV, but I mean over their tea, but it's uh <laughs> it's memorable. Yeah, she definitely. I mean, and, and that's where you do feel some of maybe Harper Lee's own sexuality and, you know, kind of informing the book. It's it seems to be more about being uncomfortable with having to be a certain kind of woman and also not liking that kind of woman. These what she takes to be these kind of chattering, gossipy ladies that she's completely uninterested in. Right. I'm also interested in reading like a queer studies paper on yeah. the uh, the snowman or snow woman that's referred to as a right. hermaphrodite. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Morphodite. 
great. It starts off impersonating one neighbor and turns into a neighbor of a different gender, I believe. Yes. And then gets Good referred point, to Trey. as a morphodite. You know what? I just got that. I didn't realize that that's what that I was like, what is the morphodite? <laughs> <laughs> um, Troy, what else struck you about this book? I mean, what other... You you, were, you said at the beginning that you think it is a very good novel, and can you just tell us more about why that is? Um, you know, I really do like the sort of the voice in it. You, yeah. know, you were talking before about the um, sort of that call and response scene in the church mm-hmm. um, that Calperti refers to, teaches Scout that that's called Linen. <laughs> um, and I like that a lot. And there's, once a chapter, there's this uh, sort of striking sort of localism that sort of catches the imagination and adds to the sort of the sense of place. I do like the book a lot. As I'm going to say again that I think it's sort of too long, partly because it's as if the narrative itself catches the sultriness of snoozy small-town life and also the the sort of laziness of childhood summers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that has its merits and demerits. Mm. I want to talk about the end a little bit. If yeah, it's okay, Megan. Well, I would. I was just about to move us to the end, so that would be great, and also especially to the kind of final appearance of Boo Radley, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. I. I mean, I just wonder what you guys think about this. I mean, it's you were right, Megan. It has this double plot, and then at the end, Jem and Scout are in danger. Bob Yule has come after them. It's very. It's at night. There's this kind of nice farcical point about how Scout is wearing a ham costume that in fact (laughs) saves her life and also I think has to do with the idea that even in this moment where she's really having to confront the evil and danger of the adult world, she's sort of insulated from it. She literally cannot see what is going on. (laughs) And Boo Radley comes out and rescues them. And this is the moment in which Boo um, and Scout actually meet each other. Um, And he, as Attica says at the end, thank you for my children. He saves their lives. and But then Sheriff Tate, who is also a fairly principled character in the book, tells Atticus that the story is going to be that Bob Yule fell on his knife, essentially because Boo is such a lonely, recluse man that he can't handle having a lot of attention, that if women brought him in the town, brought him a lot of food and thanks, that would be just sort of the wrong thing for him as this very shy person. It's really a weird (laughs) statement. And this is actually one of the things in Malcolm Gladwell's article that I really agreed with. I mean, here is this person who seems like he's essentially been trapped in his house by his abusive parents, and now he can't emerge as a hero because he's too shy to handle it? Like, what? There's... Hmm. What kind of justice is being served in that moment? So that's part of the, what's interesting to me about Boo is that is that it's not just that he's been trapped in his house; that somehow he chooses it too, right? Because there's this—I mean, not as a child, but there's some right. sense that like yes. this is one of those. It's like the stories of children who've been like tied to a radiator and don't ever see the light of day. Like even when she sees him, he's like pale as a ghost. He's a freaky. He is a freaky figure. He's not actually. They've imagined him as an, a freakier figure, but it's not that he emerges and is sort totally of like normal, a shambling, sweet guy. Right, right. He's, right. He's, a, he's shambling, but odd. But there is an important idea, and, and whether we believe this or not, I guess, is a good question, that Jem, says, Jem articulates after the trial, which is that some people must choose to live inside because they don't want to deal with the outside world. And that seems to be part of how we're supposed to think of Boo. Troy, is that, do you believe that that's part of, the, of why Boo is in the house? That he doesn't want to deal with the ugliness of society? 
you're saying is it kind of a the the recluse of a, the reclusion of a saint or the is it not only that he's a victim but that he's a, that there's an element of choice i guess would be one way of asking that question do we believe jem when jem says there's some element of choice there can I mull that over yeah, for a while? Sure. I think it's what totally is confusing. Is there free will? Is, is that what you're going to mull? <laughs> you're going to have to come back tomorrow. Because honey. definitely he is trapped there because, like, Arthur comes out, you know, when Boo is sort of trying to connect with the kids by putting little things in the tree, Arthur yeah. comes out and cements it. I mean, that, no, it's definitely, there's something odd. It's very there, strange. But, also, but. what we know about him is that as a kid, as like a teenager, he was carousing with the other teenagers and right. got in trouble, and then his dad kind of yanked him right. back in, which makes you think he had this essentially normal childhood and adolescence. And right. then, and then he suddenly decided he never wanted to speak to anyone again. It's right. Very well, it's not strange. that he wa- decide. Right. I'm not saying that he decides it, but that he's kept inside, and then at some point, he, you know, it's yeah. weird. It doesn't right. totally work. And he stabs his father with the scissors. I mean, all this stuff, but no one tries it. I mean, it's a whole right. weird. Right. And then story. the other thing that I actually found heartbreaking is that at the end of the book, Scout, in her narrator's voice, says, "And we never saw him again." And so yeah. they've had this one moment of connection in which he very movingly, Jem is asleep knocked out actually on the bed because his arm has been broken and Boo comes over and touches his hair and it's it's like I mean it, the moment mm. that sort of gave me chills but then that's it these kids mm-hmm. who he's saved their lives he seems to really care about and mm-hmm. who have the sense of connection to him and who live two doors down and they're never going to speak again mm-hmm. Ooh. it's a weird part it's for me the part I remembered most vividly about the book and there's it, something very upsetting about right and about I think him. it's hard to understand it within the context of this town because whatever the flaws are and however much like the white people are you know dealing unfairly and in a bad way with the black people. The white people basically seem to essentially take care of each other to some degree. And yet in this moment they're, they've basically in their midst allowed this person to be abandoned. Yeah. It's, it's a book about place and also about sort of knowing one's place maybe and struggling mm-hmm. with sort mm-hmm. of society's expectations of what that place is. I'd also point out that it's um, it's Jem's left arm. In a book where left arms are important, it's it's um, Jem's left Not arm. Not his gets... football throwing arm, right? Right, right. <laughs> and also, in I, I can imagine, I, you know, I believe that in Alabama at this time, it, you know, a kid who is naturally left-handed would have that left hand sort of whacked um, with a ruler by his teacher. Right, right. S- sinister. sinister. The sinister arm. <laughs> I'm one of them. Yeah. Me too. It's interesting. I mean, you're right. So it is a book about place. I mean, I thought about the Boo story in the ways that you're talking about, Emily. And and one thing I ended up thinking is that the Radleys are a version of the Yules in a sense. That there are these – part of what the book is about is – it is a book about American democracy. What saves it from being pedantic is that it's about how democracy applies to communities, how and in fact, how democracy came out of these kinds of communities and, and kind of towns deciding how they wanted to think about justice and survival and the group. And and one of the things that Lee seems to be getting at, and that Atticus Finch does seem to espouse and, and is in some ways accommodationist, is this idea that like you make exceptions, you kind of you deal with the realities. You don't. You're not idealist, and the realities are the Radleys. This way, and so Boo, and Boo was a troublemaker, and so everyone kind of steps back, right? Because he's not being. It right. feels like a book of t- its time in that way, as yeah, you were saying. I think like that's that really character, true. I think, couldn't 
I don't know. It's just be very different. We hope to read, that that right. character wouldn't exist in this way. Right. I mean, right. I hope. But I think you're right, Megan. It's also about the flaws of this kind of democracy yeah. that it's yeah. not actually going to protect everyone. That you know, yeah. some people are going to basically be left out there to fend for themselves, and and they're not going to be able to. Yeah, and that it has to work that way. The book seems to think ultimately it has to work that way. I suppose, I and I think the thing that's hard to square is that it's written with all this enormous affection and nostalgia, and yet, you know, there's this terrible injustice where this man is convicted and then, you know, dies in prison because he panics, understandably. And then you have these other characters who have also really fallen by the wayside and not been taken care of by this community. And yet we still emerge with this sense of love for it from her and well, from ourselves, yeah. Think I think, too. I was going to ask you about that because we talked about this issue of sentimentality. And, it, and one of the things that really struck me this time reading the book is during the whole amazing trial passage, I was like, what kept this book from feeling horribly tragic to me as a child? Because it felt sad and upsetting, but it didn't feel like, it didn't feel bleak, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And I realized that it is Lee kind of guiding us to feel that after they leave the courthouse and they've come home and Jem is really upset, right, by the by the guilty verdict. And Scout is trying to figure out, I mean, she's upset, but not as deeply as Jem because she's younger. And and I think it's her their aunt who says, it's not as bad as you think it is. You know, there are men like, yes, the wrong thing happened. But she says something like there are men like Atticus Finch who do the right thing. And that's what matters. And later, there's another moment like that of things are bad, people are cruel, but there's also love, right? And I think Lee uses the word love. And so there's this real, that seems ultimately to be the kind of ethical stance of the book. This do the bad things, but there is love, there is community, and that outweighs somehow. And it is a funny... Well, it also rests a lot on Atticus's shoulders, right? I mean, one of the most powerful scenes in the book is that after he has represented Tom and Tom has been convicted as he's leaving the courtroom, all the African-Americans in the balcony stand up for him and Scout is still sitting down and the reverend says, stand up, Miss Jean Louise, your father is passing. And (laughs) it... uh, I'm such a sentimentalist. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> um, but it, uh, you know, it. We that there's an enormous dignity in that moment, the sense of gratitude. And yeah. if if Atticus is going to f- kind of fall apart, if we have to truly re-examine whether right. he is a good character, then I think the book becomes much more bleak. Yeah, <laughs> I don't well, really want to go there. I mean, the book is isn't it fundamentally optimistic about yes. human nature? Yes. Um, and even though. The book looks on a town that's sort of limited and small-minded with some degree of nostalgia and affection. I think that's that's okay. There's a lot of injustice in America. I still love it. I think right, that is right. finally we can hold the thing, right? It's, it's, it's exactly that. It's like there's a lot of problems. There's this real ethical, dilemma, you know, kind of blot at the core of it, but it's America. It's got democracy. I do think that is Lee's point. And it also is part of why I really think this is a book for kids in a way. I mean, not you know, for, let's say, young adults. Is that it's modeling that. It's modeling hopefulness, I think, ultimately. It's saying this is really important. And it's modeling parenting, mm-hmm. too. And it matters a little bit, too, Finding your think, personal hero. Right. And Atticus gets elected to the state legislature, too, right? right? I feel like that's a real sort of direct appeal to um, the functioning of democracy. Yeah. Well, we should bring this to a close in a moment, but Troy and Emily, are there any last things that you would want to say before we before we wrap this up? Should we talk about the sort of the silence of Harper Lee and her yes. not having done anything since? Please. Uh it's a peculiar one, right? It's not uh sort of like JD Salinger's that sort of 
brings out a lot of sort of nuts and nor is it also like it, it's not as sort of uh, fabled as Thomas Pynchon's right who when V was published he was living in Mexico City at the time I think and Time Magazine came after him and he went out the window hmm. I think that Harper Lee th- though the book uh, inspires a lot of affection that um, in her case that doesn't get transformed into rabid devotion because is it partly because she's a woman and that there's this air of gentility about her hmm. that's a I don't know and you know all that said she's she's around she lives mm-hmm. in New York half the year and I've seen her at parties and there's a great sort of profile of her in the LA Times maybe five or six or eight years ago for which she was clearly like a background source and it's just about her like taking the bus and going to Yankees games and and the Times, the New York Times did a piece where I think it was um, Gina Belafonte, right? I think saw her and spent a little, was inter- I think actually interviewed her. I should okay. have checked that before. You know, it's a great question. I think, Troy, for me, part of it is that the, the story that surrounds, that has emerged to surround this silence is very different from the story that's emerged to surround Pynchon and Salinger, which is to say both Pynchon and Salinger wrote more than one book, right? They wrote several books and then there's this decision to be a recluse. In in Lee's case, it's not just the silence of the recluse, it's the silence of the writer, too, and the writing voice. Mm-hmm. And one of the kind of myths about her is that she's been trying and trying to write novels and failing, right? And there's this whole story about how she had written almost all of a novel and it was lost or disappeared. I can't remember the exact. Someone stole it or she left it in a taxi cab. So there's all these sort of stories about her near misses with subsequent novels. And I think that's part of why, in a weird way, now you could ask, like, does that is that part of this kind of le- the gender difference? Like, is there just less fascination with her? Because the other story is, of course, that Truman Capote, who is the model for the Dill character in the book, it's thought right that they were they were childhood friends, and Dill it seems to be a kind of Capote esque figure. And one of the other rumors that flies around is that Capote really wrote or helped her write a lot of this novel, and that that's why she can't she hasn't written another. Do you buy it? Um, no. I think she wrote it. I bet he read it and gave her some suggestions, you know? Is there any evidence that she helped him with some of his work, too? Can we turn it around? um, And I'm going to get the details wrong, and hopefully our listeners will look this up for themselves. But I think she was hired to do research on In Cold Blood and went out there, right, with him, and and vice versa. And so there is some speculation that, in fact, she helped him, too. And certainly they seem to have had a very kind of melded, melded relationship. What do you think, Emily, about this? Well, I don't, I'm not really sure what I think, except that I have this idea that to write one gem-like novel is such an amazing accomplishment, (laughs) and I sort of feel like you should be off the hook. Like, that's an amazing (laughs) thing to pull off, and and, I mean, if you have other beautiful novels to produce, produce them, but if not, not. If I ever wrote a book that was like anything like this, I would feel so proud and happy and I feel like it would be okay to say you know what maybe I can't do that again and go off and do something else. It's like retiring at the top of your game. Exactly. I totally agree that was so my feeling rereading this book I was like this is such an extraordinary book and it so comes from something that she had something she had to write and labor to write and you can see was difficult to write and there it is and it endures. Yeah. Yeah. What about you Troy? Any last thoughts? I thought that was a beautiful note to end on. Okay. Well on that note then 
Thank you so much for joining us for Slate's Audio Book Club. Thank you, Troy and Emily, for joining me. And for Slate.com, I'm Megan O'Rourke. Mm-hmm.